Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. This is Peter Kapsner filling in for Bill today. Bill is off on a holiday and delighted to be with all of you as part of the Faith Radio family. So many of these beautiful conversations that Bill hosts every afternoon from 4 to 6 Central Time like this with just Bible studies and good authors and great topics, and today will be no exception. And Rosie Brunson, delighted to be joined in studio by you this afternoon as well. It's so fun to see you across the plexiglass. Across the plexiglass, indeed, yeah. And you guys have set up a great show, and our our first author we're going to bring in uh, that has written the book, We Go On. And what an important topic that we're going to talk about in this first half an hour, because one of the things that I know we are all familiar with is we are familiar with grief. And familiar with pain and familiar with sorrow. And it's just, it's part of the experience of life in this world. And our author, John Anwachekwa, is uh, joining us this afternoon with this book. Again, we go on. It's quite a tale that takes us through the book of Ecclesiastes in the scriptures and gets us into this topic of grief. Good afternoon, John. Hey, glad to be here with your man, and you did a fantastic job on the last name too. <laughs> well, you know, it, it was you, you. You tutored me well, John, on this, and and this is quite the story. I, I really appreciate in this book uh, we go on how you wrap your own personal story as a pastor, as a person who grew up in Nigeria, as somebody who also has been acquainted with with just tragedy in life, because I think that's a familiar part of just about everybody's story. Yeah. No. 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 Thank you. It was. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I'd love to take credit for all of that, but yeah, in writing, it was just so good to just be reminded. Like, I I think one of the reasons that Ecclesiastes j- jumps off of the page is that it's not a book uh, full of yeah hard truths and cold propositions. But I think sometimes, you know, the you know the hardest truths just need to be wrapped in you know, the warm package of human experience. And so I tried to do that as much as I could so that it wouldn't feel like I was, you know, talking at or lecturing people as we go through such hard things. But I just wanted people to kind of get in the car and take a drive with me and know that if anything, I mean, I may not have great words of wisdom. I'm just trying to be generous uh, with my tears and, yeah, hope that that was instructive. And John, part of the story that you tell in your book is uh, while you're in the midst of preparing to plant a church in Atlanta as a pastor, um, some real tragedy struck within your family with the death of your brother. So tell us a little bit about the story. Yeah, so um, it was um, six weeks before we were getting ready to plant our church, and really four days after um uh, a failed adoption, and my wife and I have been trying to have kids for eight years. I got a phone call that my older brother, um, who also was a pastor at the time, you know, he's 32 years old at the time, five, three, and one, three kids were five, three, and one, and just got the call that he suddenly and unexpectedly passed. And uh, I, I felt like um, that phone call was probably the second biggest surprise in my life. Uh, the first biggest surprise in my life took place in the months that followed, uh, where 
I found myself as somebody who, yeah, had been pastoring since he was 22, uh, just questioning everything. And so I felt like my faith and all the things that I thought that I knew about the goodness of God seemed hollow and shaky and a little bit transparent and um, just found myself really at a loss, not knowing what to do next and depressed and not even really knowing how I got there or how to get out of that pit. And and when you're living that kind of tragedy or that sort of event, and I know people listening, I'm sure, are familiar, whether it is a diagnosis that they've just received or the sudden death of a loved one, as you've experienced, or the loss of a job, uh, you can tell the story over the course of maybe a minute or two or three, but it really doesn't do justice to that day-to-day life where you're living it minute in and minute out. It's sort of always right. in front of you, right? And begin to spill out in your yeah. life, and and you begin to search for, for where hope and meaning could come out of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that search for hope is something that you just find is instinctive, right? You just grasp for it anywhere. And so I would, you, I, yeah, waffle and waver in between uh, putting my hands to the plow and trying to accomplish and achieve to take my mind off of things. And then I found myself, yeah, like just trying to indulge and to, relaxed to try to take my mind off of things. And it just seemed like uh, if for for those first few years, I I think I, I was searching for peace and hope. And, and, and I kind of just felt like I was on the wrong side of every door, right? If you know what that feeling feels like. And just, it really stuck. And it was, yeah the book of Ecclesiastes that unexpectedly was the book that it lifted me up out of my misery. I can't wait to talk more about what you found in Ecclesiastes. Uh, before we do, you, uh, prior to this event, you grew up in Nigeria from, from what I understand from your story. And, and that was a difficult place for you too. So you're pretty young in life at this point and already have experienced a lot of harrowing trauma and quite a bit of grief. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, no, no. It was, um, I grew up in Houston, but right before college, my parents are from Nigeria right. and they took us back. And so, yeah, 20 years ago this summer, it was, uh, you know, right before I go off to, to school, I find myself with my mom and my dad and my four brothers and sisters just yeah, buried face deep in that red dirt with our face to the ground and, men pointing guns to the back of our head and just yeah being robbed at gunpoint in a foreign country where you don't know anybody has a way of sobering you up a bit and so it's just yeah things like that that just routinely found their way in our front yeah doorstep that um yeah helped to yeah, now I look back and I say how they helped to give perspective on life but in the midst of it it didn't feel all that helpful. Talking with author John Anwuchekwa about his book, We Go On, and it is a book that tells quite the tale of tragedy and grief, but more importantly, it takes us into authentic hope. And John, you walk us through the book of Ecclesiastes, but I'm curious, did Ecclesiastes find you? Did you find it? This this isn't really a book in the Bible, maybe that a lot of times we run across when we're doing our normal study. So how did yeah. you how did you find your way into Ecclesiastes? No, no, Ecclesiastes found me. I found myself um, 
just really burnt out. And my church granted me a sabbatical. And so I've got this little disconnected office in, in, in the back of my house. I'm sitting in it right now. And as I'm just sitting here in this yeah, like like deep blue room with all of my books on the side kind of closed in, I've, I found myself just grasping for something. And so um, I came across that book and, you know, the opening words, you know, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. I read it and it struck me. Uh, not just because I was feeling those words, but because of how odd that I found that the author would write those words, that here I was. I mean, I felt like I'd lost it all. And I would say things were meaningless because I felt like I was in a deficit. But then I read this book, and I know that the author of the book had it all, and he came to the same conclusion I did. And I feel like sitting in that room, that was when it just hit me like a ton of bricks. It just felt like, all right, if we find ourselves with two different circumstances, I lost it all, the author of the book had it all, and we both find ourselves depressed saying that life is meaningless, then maybe depression isn't necessarily circumstantial. And so I just felt like, yeah, just a glimmer of hope felt like, all right, maybe if depression isn't circumstantial, then living with hope doesn't have to be circumstantial either. And so I feel like those first, that first verse gripped me and I just devoured the rest of the book trying to find some sense of hope. And I think a book that depresses so many found me in my depressed state and I just felt vindicated for a bit. I just, for a moment, right. I just felt like, all right, I'm not crazy. I'm not the only one that is completely over this experience of life that we had. Hmm. John, we're going to step away for just a minute. When we come back, I want to talk about where you did begin to find a different kind of meaning. Before we do, I was talking about this interview with you with my 20-year-old daughter, and uh, and she was thinking the other day, the, this comment, she said, uh, so much of life is just waking up, doing work, and seeing people, and eating food, and going from place to place, and then sleeping again. And she said, and then we die. <laughs> said, we're also hungry for something more than that, because otherwise it's endless monotony without a point, right? Vanity, vanity, mm. all is vanity. We're talking with John Anwachekwa in his book, We Go On, about finding some hope in the midst of what could otherwise be a meaningless existence right from the book of Ecclesiastes. Stay with us. More to come in just a minute. back to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. That's Peter Kapsner filling in for today. And we are having a conversation with Pastor John Anwu-Chekwa. He pastors out of Atlanta. He's written a book titled We Go On and How We Move Forward in the Midst of Tragedy, especially related to lessons from the book of Ecclesiastes. And John, we talked a little bit about how life can feel meaningless and purposelessness, especially in the midst of tragedy. But as you worked your way through Ecclesiastes, there were some more 
uh, signposts along the way about a life of hope. And especially yeah. in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, it sounds like you began to develop um, some really important thoughts related to how we do go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting because there is no happily ever after in the book, but one of the shifts for me that I saw in in real time was this, that, you know, Ecclesiastes 1, it just starts off and it just says, hey, you know, what profit does anybody have in this world? And so it's his book, In Search of Some Good Return for the Work. And ironically uh, uh, enough, chapter 4 is the first place that that comes in, but it's in this little phrase where it says, you know, no, no, no. two are better than one because they have a good return on their work. And if somebody falls down, there's somebody to pick them up. If he's cold, he has somebody else to keep them warm. If he gets into a fight, he's got somebody else to help him. Uh, that the danger in this life, right, the thing that we spend our lives trying to avoid so much is imperfection, right? Things that go wrong, tragedy, heartache. And I've learned tragedy doesn't ruin people. Um, hopelessness does. So Ecclesiastes 4 says, no, 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 no. It is. You are unable to avoid um, falling down in life, cold nights or hard fights. So your fight in life is not against imperfection. Your fight in life is against isolation. Mm. And that was when I started to see the turning point. So I do pastor a, a, a church here in the West End of Atlanta. I also live in the West End and own a business in the West End. So my whole life takes place in, you know, a square mile, really. And I remember in those early days after I lost Sam, um, just not being able to communicate well with my wife and she was doing everything that she could. And when she would try to help me, I would push her away. When she would try to give me my space, I would uh, be frustrated with her that she didn't uh, pry in. And I remember this one Saturday, the Saturday before the church was getting ready to launch, we got into a big fight about what I don't remember, right? That's how these <laughs> things go. And, you know, sitting downstairs in our little town home at the time, and she's like, I've, I've had it, John, I just can't. And I'm like, well, let me help you pack your bag. And the next thing I know, she's out of the door. And as soon as she's out of the door, I realize what a mistake that I made. And the first thing that I do is I don't think, what do I need to do? The first thing I think of is, who do I need to call? So I'm at my lowest point, and I call three of my dearest friends who were all pastors of the church with me, who years before we all said, hey, if we're going to do this thing, let's not just pastor the same church. Let's move into the same neighborhood. You know, Peter, here's where things changed. After I called them that day, when I was at the lowest point in my life, in four minutes, they're all at my front doorstep. And it's just, uh, it's it's something that I don't think that we realize. But what I learned is like, man, when it comes to being depressed and by yourself, you know, the difference between having support come to your doorstep in four minutes and 30 minutes is the difference between, you know, suicidal thoughts Mm. and suicide attempts. And I just feel like I was fortunate and blessed to have not 
experience the products of isolation. But even when I push the people closest to me away, uh, the people that love me the most lived in my neighborhood. And it was in that that I saw the beauty of what was being said in Ecclesiastes mm-hmm. 4, right? That nothing in life is going to be all that we hoped that it would be. Um, you know, the more we learn, the more we lament, the more um, yeah, we've got this eternal palate that, that can consume every earthly pleasure, even paradise, and still leave us empty on the inside, all these things in life. But um, yeah, one of the things that is undefeated in this world is the community that God has provided for us. And I feel yeah, that to me is the lesson that I think I learned at the bottom floor of my town home that day. And there's nobody or nothing in the world that could ever make me unlearn that. Mm. John, when uh, there's such vulnerability when we're in the midst of tragedy and, and an interpersonal failure, as you described, as you and your wife were fighting and going through such difficulty and, and stuff we don't really talk about a lot, or we don't, we tend not to talk about it in Christian circles a lot of times. And yet it is the experience so many of us are having. Was it difficult to be vulnerable with your friends at first? Or were you just at that point saying, Hey man, I've got nothing left to lose. It's it's time to be real with everybody around me. And, and how yeah. important is that for people to come out of that hopelessness? Yeah. I was at that point where I just felt like I had nothing left to lose. And the irony of it is that, yeah, the fear of vulnerability is always preemptive, right? That it's not like once you actually say the words, you don't feel fear or shame, but mm-hmm. you feel a sense of relief. So the goal is like trying to take care of that preemptive fear that stands in the way. And I think one of the things that helped me is that I've been surrounded by good people who were models of that before me. So I saw it at work. So, um, yeah, my hope with this book was to be able to do just that, right? For people that I know, I want them to see it. And for people that I don't know, I just want them to know that, yeah, that that type of confession is the pathway towards freedom. Mm. Talking with Pastor John Anwuchekwa, his book, We Go On, for lessons from the book of Ecclesiastes about how to work through suffering and grief and towards hope. John, we just have a couple of minutes left here, a couple more questions. And yeah. one of them is, I'm assuming you carry these scars with you, right? We don't, we don't get a chance to forget those tragedies and those traumas and failures in our life, but, but we do find a different way forward and, and even maybe an unusual strength that's only available in God's kingdom related to all of this. Yeah, yeah. um, I think one of the greatest lessons that I've learned is, at least on this side of eternity, grief doesn't have an expiration date, right? We tend to think that it does on the front end. We tend to think that it's like a loaf of bread that is fresh, but then as time goes on, it'll just kind of crumble and fade away. But I've learned grief isn't like that, that all new joys from here on out carry with them just the tinge of sorrow. I mean, I talked to you about my five-year-old daughter, and we wanted to have kids for so long. And uh, my older brother never got a chance to meet her, and Ava never got a chance to meet him, right? And so that's something that, 
yeah, it still hurts, but I do feel like once 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 we realize that grief doesn't have an expiration date, then we stop beating up ourselves for not getting past it, right? Like so many times grief is compounded because we chastise ourselves for saying things like, well, I know that God is in control, so I know that I shouldn't feel this way. And that's, no, that's false. It's no, I know that God is in control, so I know one day the feelings are going to resolve, but I've, we change our perspective and say, hey, the goal of this life is not to arrive at a finish line with grief. The goal in this life is to move forward with our grief, to carry it with us, uh, to make us yeah, generous with our tears as we're invariably going to find ourselves walking with somebody else as they grieve and the same thing. And we just yeah, want to have the experience that helps them to find their way uh, forward in grief. Uh, yeah. Right mm. along with us. Yeah, John, I, I've, as I've been getting older in life and just thinking about uh, just some of the tragedy that, that I've carried as well and participated in, um, hold on to the great promise that our tears will be wiped away, even if they're not going to be wiped Amen. away in this life, they will be wiped away in the life to come. That That is one of the unique promises of our faith, is it not? Amen. Amen. One of the ones that we hold, that I personally hold the most dearly. Hmm. We we just have a minute left. I'd be curious. You have a five year old daughter now. And when it comes yes. to these deep truths and these deep waters of kingdom life, um, how, how do you begin to prepare even your kids for this kind of life moving forward? Uh, because the, the trauma will inevitably come. It'll fun. Yeah. One of the things that we do and we've learned is a scripture, God's word. And so uh, one of the traditions that we've had is you know, just starting with the, the Psalms, right? It's been said the rest of the Bible speaks to us, but the Psalms speak for us. And so I just want to give my daughter both a permission, both permission to grieve and a script to grieve. So we'll take a Psalm like Psalm 23. And the good thing about a Psalm, uh, Tim Keller is going to say, is it's like hard candy mm. where you don't have to move through it quick. You just kind of suck on it for a long time and it uh, helps that way. And so we'll take one verse and we'll do one verse per week and every day at breakfast. And when she comes home, we'll talk about that one verse. And six weeks later, all right, we've got Psalm 23 down and we continue to go back. And yet to this day, I mean, we did Psalm 23, a year and a half ago, and to this day, when she's scared, we go back and say, all right, even though I walk through the darkest valley, what, mm-hmm. sweetheart? And she says, I know that you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they will comfort me. John, and we got to leave it right there. Right? That's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, wait amen. A yeah, amen. The book, as we go on, you're going to want to pick up a copy of this. We're going to be back in just a minute with Timothy Yearsley from the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. Started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Yeah. It's the afternoon 
Welcome back to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today as Bill is on holiday for just today. He'll be back in this host chair tomorrow. And we are joined by Tim Yearsley of the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Tim, that's a mouthful. Tell us about the Institute. It sure is. Normally, I just say LICC and leave the acronym ambiguous. <laughs> I love it. So you, uh, the Institute was founded by John Stott, somebody whose name is probably quite familiar to a number of people. And, and you're obviously in some of the next generation ministry. One of the things that really intrigued me, Tim, when I had a chance to chat with you on the Carmen show in the morning when I subbed last week was uh, you have this phrase, whole life gospel. And, mm. uh, and it's in contrast to what you would describe as being a thin gospel. So Maybe take us into what you mean by a whole life gospel and you and the importance that you see for this version of a gospel moving forward. Yes, well, I mean, the first thing to say is what other gospel is there than the whole life gospel? If uh, we take Colossians 1 seriously, that God is through Christ reconciling all things to himself and he invites us to be players in his mission of redemption of everything, then that must touch every single area of life. It can't just be a compartmentalized discipleship that changes how we spend our leisure time or means that we invite our curious non-Christian friends to spend their leisure time differently coming to Christian meetings. It's got to touch everything that we do, uh, where we work, where we play, the streets where we live, the kind of decisions we make about how we spend our money, um, the kind, the ways we engage with culture and social media, all of this comes under the scope of the gospel and uh, what God is doing to redeem this world. So when we talk about the whole life gospel, that's what we're talking about. Everything from Genesis 1 through to Revelation 22, creation to new creation and everything in between. And Tim, I know you work with a lot of young people and you're based in Nottingham, but you travel around the UK as part of the ministry. And, and um, not just young people, but people of all ages seem to be responsible to this invitation to think, hmm, how can I be a reconciler in the world around me from uh, Monday through Saturday, not just be a, a Sunday Christian, as you said, but this this life of following Jesus uh, is involved, it, it gets involved in every aspect of my life. It, it sounds like you're getting some momentum over there with that message. Yes, I hope so. And I mean, the obvious but painful thing to say is that we're not getting traction with the opposite message, which is the continuation of this kind of thin, compartmentalized gospel. The stats in the UK are pretty scary about young people leaving the church. We know that 74% of Christians who were raised in a Christian home have left church by the time they're 35 74 percent so almost three quarters are walking away from church but through some of the research we've been looking at it doesn't seem to be the case that they are walking away because they think the gospel isn't true necessarily it's because they think the gospel isn't relevant because it doesn't speak into their actual lived experience and we know the next generation prize authenticity they want to be the same people on monday as they are on sunday so a gospel that doesn't help them show up to their workplaces or their the gyms where they work out or the places where they uh, play in their bands or musical theater groups or anything like that uh, isn't a gospel that's worth their time or interest now to flip all of that on its head as you're implying is to start to rediscover the fullness of the gospel and how it does touch every aspect of life. And I think what we're finding is that a gospel that uh, makes sense of young adults' experiences, especially through the first decade of their working lives, which is where I'm focused, is a gospel that is compelling. It's a gospel that brings meaning and purpose into their lived experience. It's attractive, and we're excited about learning how to 
not um, make the gospel relevant, but to demonstrate its relevance to this next generation, to coin uh, or copy a phrase from our founder, John Stott. And Tim, we're going to talk a little bit about how you've made the gospel relevant, even as part of a death metal band here in just a minute. But one more question on just what what we even mean by the gospel, as I think part of what I understand is you're comparing and contrasting is a version of the gospel that really was centered on somebody making a decision for Jesus to, to position themselves properly in their eternal destiny, that that's really how some people believe the gospel was meant to be. But I think you're taking us in some refreshing ways back to maybe a, a more original invitation of the gospel, and that was to become a follower of Jesus and begin to interact with the power of sin and death, or the power that has beaten sin and death, and be a reconciler in this world. Because, Tim, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of the gospel is that Jesus beat the power of sin and death. We live by a different kind of power, and then we bring that good news everywhere around us to the world until we actually do come safely home back to heaven. I'm not going to correct you, but I'm going to add some things to that if Perfect. I may, Peter. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not any less than that. But um, to borrow some of Andy Crouch's thinking on this, when our gospel or our Bible reading begins in Genesis 3 with the fall and it ends in Revelation 20 with the lake of burning sulfur, we've missed these two pillars of the entire biblical narrative, which is creation and new creation. And when we actually learn to discover the richness of what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, we see that our God is a God who is interested in human beings flourishing in all the ways he made them to flourish, heart, soul, mind, strength, to live with purpose, to live in a fullness of relationship, to take joy in the work that they do. And these things were established by God as part of who we were meant to be, before he gave us the mission to do evangelism in the world and to take the message of Jesus to our friends and neighbors and uh, curious colleagues. So I think actually this is a bit of a mindset shift, but one I think is incredibly important, which is that evangelism is uh, sharing with people this message that God wants to see you become more fully alive, more of the person that he made you to be. And when we start with that perspective, when we when we anchor our evangelism and our gospel thinking in Genesis 1 and 2, and we see it mirrored all the way at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22, uh, I think we can learn to discover this new, fresh, appealing language that certainly doesn't do any disservice to all of the good work that has come before us in generations past in how we've learned to share the gospel in these pithy, memorable ways and help people make decisions for Jesus, but is a much richer, fuller, more uh, imaginatively engaging gospel than we might have previously been used to. Mm, so helpful. We're talking with Tim Yearsley from the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity about something that he's called uh, the whole life gospel, uh, which really is, as you said, Tim, is the gospel. And this gospel has managed to be, to be manifest in your own life, even as you're playing in a death metal band. And you better be a little careful here, Tim, because I grew up, you know, in a proper Baptist institution. We, we couldn't even have hair past our ears if I even had hair back then. So we're talking about death metal music now. How does this play itself out in your life? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. And I think normally when this comes up, when I meet people at weddings and I introduce myself and talk about the things that I like to do, uh, people maybe raise eyebrows. But I think when people have questions about the kind of death metal subculture and maybe the presentation of itself seems quite 
antagonistic or even kind of spiritually uh, the opposite of what we're supposed to be about as Christians, it's helpful to just raise the question of the kind of music that whoever I'm talking to might be listening to. Um, and just popular music that's on regular radio stations also carries a message and has implicit in it some values about the way the world should be and the way human beings are and the way we tend to relate to one another. And I think that can be just as subversive, even more so than the kind of lyrics and music that's made in death metal, which for me is a genre that's about speaking truth to power, putting your emotions out there and being authentic in a way that uh, sometimes, may I say, Christian subculture doesn't allow. So it's compelling to me in that way. And I mean, if we want to go down this route, I can talk about the joy I find in the creativity of the process, uh, making music together with my bandmates who aren't themselves Christians. But it just gives me a great opportunity to show up with them and create something that's greater than the sum of its parts. That for me is a worshipful experience. And I could say more about that, but not everyone's interested in this conversation. (laughs) But just in in terms of interacting with your faith in this kind of context, Tim, because when we read the scriptures, if we want to take the Bible seriously, we do see that Jesus was a person who was accused of being within and around all the wrong people. And and it's pretty obvious from the text that the religious elite of that day accused of him uh, of any number of things in that. But um, if we take the Bible seriously, then I think we can find a, a lot of hope and, um, and evangelism and creativity, all of these things in what you're describing right now. It doesn't mean you're engaged with, with powers of darkness in this time. You're, you're still a person following Jesus in the midst of it. I have a feeling Jesus might have found himself in these same kind of places if the scriptures are true. Well, I like to imagine Jesus playing in a death metal band. And actually, <laughs> one of the questions that we like to ask at LICC is, uh, what would it look like if Jesus were living your life, how would that change the way you showed up and the kind of conversations that you had, the kind of work that you did? I think there's a maybe a bit of a misconception that to be a disciple is to kind of be a first century Christian uh, and to take on some of the, the kind of ethics and the culture of the New Testament. But Really, I don't think that call to live the life that Jesus lived, which is to basically live without a home, live off the generosity of others who support us and to to do miracles, to be moving from place to place. That's not the life that most of us that are called to. And even the disciples uh, who were called to follow Jesus in that way, I would argue, were the exception to the rule. And we can think about examples in the New Testament where Jesus says to the people that want to come and follow him, no, go back to the people who are your people and tell them about what I've done for you. Think about the demoniac in Mark five. Think about the woman at the well in John four, and then think about the Christians who are in the churches that Paul is writing to in the new Testament. For example, these are people who are just getting on living their lives, doing their best, trying to work out what faith and discipleship looks like in their context. They're not called to leave their nets and go and do something different, but they are called to be Christ-like where they are. And I think that opens up a really interesting way of thinking about, what it means to be a Christian, to call myself a Christian, and then to ask myself, okay, well, if Jesus were living my life in 2022 in Nottingham, playing in a band, living where I live, how would he live my life? What would be his priorities? How would he treat people? How would he deal with interruptions? Who would he have around the dinner table? What kind of places would he show up? And uh, if he found himself in a death metal band, then how would he show up there? How would he make that into a worshipful experience that brought blessing to the people in his band and um, created something more than was there before, as well as 
opportunities to share something about who God is and giving people a meaningful opportunity to respond. So it just opens up a whole range of questions that I think are really interesting and exciting and certainly engaging for this next generation who want, as we've said already, a faith that touches every part of their lives that isn't about joining some sort of Christian subculture and filling up their leisure time with meetings. Yeah, Tim, that's so helpful. I want to go back to that topic after a short break here in just a minute about what kind of traction you are seeing with young people, because I think a lot of people are understandably wringing their hands at the statistics that we're becoming more familiar with uh, of young people leaving institutional Christianity, but they still are very hungry. And uh, it sounds like you're finding some ways in which to engage with them in a way that that causes their faith to come to life. If you want to see some of Tim's work, part of the organization uh, in which he ministers, you can go to licc.org.uk. There are a number of resources there in which you can engage. Again, it's licc dot org dot uk we'll step away for just a minute and more to come with tim yearsley Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today and delighted to be joined by Timothy Yearsley of the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. We've been talking a little bit about what it means to live a whole life gospel, especially in the generations ahead, but it's actually applicable for all of us as life in the church is certainly changing in terms of the way we gather and how we live out the gospel in our world. And uh, Tim, you talked a bit about just how uh, how Jesus would be living our life if he was me, if he was in our shoes and and what that would look like. When you when you talk that way, do young people begin to perk up in a different kind of way? Yes, I think they do, especially when it comes to the validation that gives them around the work that they do. We know that young adults are looking for a sense of meaning and purpose in their work, particularly uh, since especially this side of the pond, there's been a breakdown in affiliation to traditional institutions. So whether that be political parties or kind of local clubs and uh, focus groups or uh, even churches as well. And even the family is breaking down as a traditional institution. So where do you go to find a sense of meaning and purpose in your life? You look to your career, you look to your work. I think that's true of both Christians and non-Christians. But what it means is that if we are going to make the gospel, meaningful, compelling, accessible for this next generation. We need to be connecting the dots between what the gospel and the biblical story has to say about work with the work that these young adults are doing to show them that actually, yes, Christianity can give you a whole set of richness and meaning in what you do day to day that isn't about just showing up to work and using your work as a platform to do evangelism or to earn money to support other people to do evangelism. But actually, there's validity in what you do and your work, even if it's quote unquote secular work, can be used by God and is being used by God in his redemption plan in this world. So that's a message that we're trying to get across. And it's a message that people seem to be responding to as well. And I have a few stories, perhaps, if you'd be interested. To yeah, no, I'd love to hear that, because I think, Tim, one of the most hopeful pieces of this is that we separate out the perhaps the disinterest in institutional church as it exists among the next generation, but keen interest in um, in moving forward in their faith. And so we're just talking about a different way to gather. We're not talking about, uh, about people walking away from their Christianity. They, they just want to do something different related to it. 
Yeah, that's right. And I think it's about bringing this whole life emphasis into church when we're gathered so that we affirm the fact that we're still church when we're scattered as well. And there's this interaction between the two church gathered, church scattered, church gathered, church scattered. And that can be as simple as building in little routines and practices to Sunday church gatherings that affirm people in their workplaces and the work that they do there. And whether that's paid work or not, I should say it's all valid in God's economy. So we have something at our church that we do about once a month that I've championed, which is called This Time Tomorrow. And once a month, we just get a regular person up in the service on a Sunday and we say what are you going to be doing this time tomorrow 11am on a Monday morning and we hear something about that person's context we hear about what the pressures are for them there but we hear also about what they sense God's purposes for them in that place and it's hugely affirming not only for the person being interviewed but for the rest of the people in the congregation who hear those stories because it's a different kind of story than the one that is normally told in a sermon in a message when you're when you want that big kind of climax at the end of the Bible preach. These are stories that are very ordinary and very mundane, but to hear those stories up the front of church is such a helpful corrective to the stories of pastors and missionaries who have sacrificed so much to go overseas and share the gospel. Actually, I think it could be possible for people to be faithful disciples right where they are, whether they're teachers in schools, whether they're uh, professionals in HR consultancies, whether they work in finance, whether they work in law, whether they work in healthcare, all of these places are people where God, are, sorry, are places where God has put his people and is using them to bring blessing and bring redemption. So creating contexts where we can hear those stories in our churches, I think is a really important way to shape our church gatherings in uh, that makes them more attractive for the young adults that we want to keep around and nurture in the faith. Yeah, I totally agree. I hear some people suggest that this is a way in which we can begin to bridge the gap between sort of normal Christians and professional Christians. And and I think that has been a terribly unfortunate gap that has existed. Another thing that you talk about quite a bit, Tim, is this idea of double listening and, and the ability for all of us to do that and the practice that is involved. I know that uh, John Stott was the originator of this. So I, I was unfamiliar with the phrase double listening until I came across your work. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, double listening is key, I think, if we want to be whole life disciples. A lot of the time we can get ourselves into a bit of a Christian subculture echo chamber where we just read the Bible and we look out at the world from our cozy Christian gatherings and we think, oh, isn't the world so awful? Isn't Aren't things so terrible out there? But the thing is, we are out there. We are part of the out there. We are in this culture as well. And the forces that are shaping our peers, whether they be colleagues or family or neighbours, those are forces that we're not immune to either. So John Stott would say double listening is about having the Bible in the one hand and a newspaper in the other. So yes, we pay attention to God's revelation through the Bible, through particularly the life and ministry of Jesus and the kind of life that he calls us to, the kind of values he holds us to. But also we have to have this newspaper in our other hand where we pay attention to what's going on in the world. What are the stories that are capturing the attention of our peers? And how do we speak into that in a way that not, as I said before, makes the gospel relevant but demonstrates its relevance and a classic text on this would be john stott's issues facing christians today which he wrote in 1984 but man is it pertinent and relevant to christians 
almost 40 years later he talks about the issues that christians are facing on their front lines things of things like war and peace those are live issues global poverty human rights work business relationships ethnic diversity uh, men and women and god and how we fit together and relate to one another abortion and euthanasia all of these issues john stott was writing about in 1983 because he had this conviction that double listening was an essential part of being a whole life disciple and i think what he modeled for us in that book whether or not you agree with all his conclusions that's a slightly different question i think is really important what he's modeling there and one addition is that actually at LICC, we're playing with this idea of now triple listening, which is, yes, we need to be rooted in the Bible. Yes, we need to be paying attention to our culture, but also we need to be hearing and paying attention to the experiences of Christians who show up in our church services on Sunday mornings, which is why something like this time tomorrow is so helpful, because it helps us. Uh, step into the lived experience of Christians in the real world and find out what their questions are. What are the issues that they're dealing with? So we don't perpetuate some sort of abstract spirituality from the front or in our worship songs, but actually our sense of who God is and what he's doing through his church in this world is grounded in people's real lives. And that is a direction of travel that I think we need to be going in, especially if we're interested in keeping this next generation engaged in church and the gospel. Yeah, Tim, I remember I was introduced to a, a fancy German theological phrase when I was in seminary. It was called, uh, the phrase was sits in Laban and it meant situation in life. And it was something that was pounded into us in some really important ways that you have to be aware as a faithful disciple of what the actual situation of life is. And in these the, the the newspaper presents us with a lot of very complex and difficult kinds of issues that are really affecting people day to day. And and so to only gather as the church for maybe an hour on a Sunday with worship songs and a 20 minute sermon, maybe every once in a while on a Wednesday night, we hardly have enough time in that situation to really be equipped to deal with the situation in life. Yes, I totally agree. And I think I take my inspiration here from Paul in Acts 17 when he's speaking in Athens to the crowds there, to the philosophers there. And firstly, we see that Paul has done his good work of double listening. He knows the scriptures inside out. He knows how Jesus fulfills the story, but he's also attentive to their culture. He looks, he takes time to look around the city. He sees that it's full of idols and it greatly distresses him. But then when he speaks to the crowds there, he's able to speak into their experience. And he begins where they are starting. He doesn't wait for them to come to where he is, but actually he is able to speak about this unknown God that they have a statue to. And here's a really interesting thing that I love. Paul says, from one man, he, God, made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out the appointed their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. So I wonder if you heard that God marked out there, which we can extend to our appointed times and histories and the boundaries of our lands. God has put us in the culture he has put us in. And Paul says God did that so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. And man, how might that turn our evangelistic approach on its head if we showed up in the world with a conviction that God has put this person here in this culture because he wants them to seek him and find him in their way, in their language, at their time. And he is actually not far from them. 
that's what Paul says in Acts 17. And I think that's a really exciting um, and energizing approach to thinking about mission and evangelism in our context. Yeah, and Tim, we just have about a minute left or so. But then when you tie that into what you talked about earlier, that being triple listening, in order to understand the appointed times and who God has placed where, it, it can't be the church trying to market to individuals to get them through the door to build the institution. It has to be taking one another seriously and really listening in that way. Yes, exactly. And I'm sorry if there are any pastors or full-time paid Christian workers listening in, but um, guys, it's not all up to you. The good news is there's a Messiah, and the better news is it isn't you, actually. (laughs) The body of Christ exists out in the world. It's doing its thing. And I think the job of our church leadership in all its different shapes and sizes is to equip the saints for works of ministry, Ephesians 4. Let's release the best asset the church has, which is the people who show up every Sunday morning but are out there in the week living lives of faith that we hope are going to be uh, compelling to their neighbors and friends. That's that's something that I would like to see unleashed in this next generation. Now, Tim, thanks for joining us. I know it's late in Nottingham time, as it were, just about 11 o'clock your time, but I uh, love the work that you're doing. Again, if you want to catch some of what Tim and the ministry is up to at licc.org, it's a great place to see what's going on in the next generation. Thanks, Tim. Look forward to catching up again soon. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate it. We'll uh, step away here for just a couple minutes, but when we come back for the second hour of Afternoons with Bill, uh, Bill and I will continue our Sunburn series with author Sharon Dirks. Bill and I had a chance to pre-record this conversation earlier this week. She has a book titled, Am I Just My Brain? And uh, Sharon takes us into a lot of the complexity of neuroscience and wondering if our experiences of God are actually real or if they're just a bunch of chemistry and neurons and emotions firing uh, that take the place of God. It's a question I know a lot of people have. Pretty dense book, but pretty accessible book. You're going to want to stay with us for the next conversation in our Sunburn series with Sharon Dirks. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.